Well, good morning. It is so good to be back with you all. I want to thank you for your patience and grace this morning as we are, many of us are coming back from traveling. I, for one, am coming back from traveling to uh, Dothan, Alabama. Uh, many of you folks who have family in Alabama or are from Alabama would declare that the promised land. And so I, I see you in the back giving me a thumbs up. Uh, but it was a, a joy and a delight to be with our family, to be together again. Um, I am home with two of my children, my wife and my other two kids. Uh, stayed back to help with my father-in-law, who uh, many in our church know we've been praying for him for quite some time. He is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's at the moment, and so she is elected to stay back to help her mom for the next uh, several days. And so by God's grace, uh, she will be home uh, later this week, depending on how things are going with him. But either way, we had a marvelous time. Um, I'm sure all of us did. I imagine that for many of us, this Thanksgiving was probably unique. Uh, I'm sure several traveled. I'm sure several gathered with families, but I'm also confident that there were many who did not. Either way, I think the one thing that was definitely true of all of us which is whether you traveled or whether family came over or whether you were just home, uh, you probably consumed more food uh, in the past uh, several days and you probably have the entire year. In fact, I was mesmerized. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge uh, trivia person and I love a good a good trivia, and I remember doing trivia with our students during their youth's giving. I also remember sharing this trivia with my family uh, back home, and I thought this was actually fascinating. Um, I did not realize this uh, until I said it, and then I did it, um, that your Thanksgiving meal is the one meal where you probably consume the most calories in one year at one sitting. Here's what I mean by that. On a daily, we know that we should consume roughly 2,000 to 2,500 calories, right, uh, depending on your diet. However, for your Thanksgiving meal, the average American consumes 4,500 calories in one sitting. And I thought that was absurd until I finished lunch on Thanksgiving Day and realized that I had eaten enough calories to last the next 72 hours. So naturally, got home yesterday. Uh, my girls and I looked at each other and said, what do you want for dinner? Uh, dinner consisted of some saltine crackers and some deli sliced ham, and that was it. Uh, that's all we could stomach to make up for all the calories that we had just consumed over this past week. But either way, it was a good time, a time of togetherness, a time to be thankful, and a time to be family. And so I'm now happy to be back, happy to be back in Brandon, Florida with you all. And what we're going to be doing today is we're actually, as you've already seen and heard, we're going to be pausing our series that we've titled Letters from the Pastor. Now, if you've not been with us, that's our series where we've already walked through Timothy, or First Timothy, we've already walked through Titus. Uh, we're going to pick back up with this series in Second Timothy with the beginning of the new year. But in the meantime, what I want us to do is over the next several weeks that we have together as we get closer to Christmas, I want us to spend some time focusing on the season that we are now in because you see we are now in Advent. Now we've already heard the definition of Advent meaning the coming and particularly this year we are focused on the second coming. Now for most people in the world and when you ask them the question of what is Advent they would probably give you a, a simple answer as something like this. They would say the arrival of a notable person or a notable thing or a notable place. Well, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, if we go based upon the secular definition there, we know who 
it is that we are now waiting for. You see, as believers in Christ, we are waiting on the return of our King, Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is as we move into this season, as we get closer to Christmas, Christmas with all of its, its wonder, its joys, its celebration, the, the blessing of opening new gifts, the blessing of giving gifts and receiving gifts, all of this is good, but the reality is Jesus Christ is the reason that we celebrate the Advent season. You see, we praise him for his birth and what it means for our lives today. Which ultimately leads us then to praise him in his death and then praise him in his resurrection and the grace and the hope and the mercy that is found in the victory that comes from the empty tomb. And so now as believers in Christ, we wait with longing, we wait with eager anticipation for his return. And that is why we celebrate Advent together as a church. You see, for us as believers today, it is about the longing for the day of his coming. Now today, I want us to focus our, on the first part of Advent today, which is hope. You see, we live in a day and a time where many people around us just simply live in confusion. They live in heartache and they live in frustration and they live in worry, which often leads people to ask the question of, God, where are you in this present moment? It may also lead us to ask the question, Lord, why are all these atrocities allowed to happen that are happening around us? In fact, I would even say as Christians today, one of the most perplexing questions that we may have would be this. Lord, if you are truly omnipotent and if you truly love your children, then why do you seem to be or why do you seem to do so little to rescue us from our vicious enemies? Well, here's the good news for us today. You see, the coming of Jesus Christ, or better yet for this Advent season, the anticipation of the second coming helps to answer that question. You see, when we look to the word of God today, we can see that rescue is coming because hope is near. And so I hope we remember that today as we walk through our passage. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 64. And we will begin reading the words of the prophet of Isaiah chapter, in chapter 64. We'll begin in verse 1. And so once you have found your place in Isaiah 64, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now again, this is Isaiah chapter 64, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. 
From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now again thanking you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity that we have now in these next few moments to worship you through the study of your word. Father, I pray that as we prepare for these next few moments, Lord, prepare our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to your truth. God, we pray that in these next few moments that you and you alone would be glorified. So Father, Guide us, lead us, teach us in these next few moments. Father, as we study this passage today, help it to create a longing in us for the day that you come again. And so, Father, in these next few moments that we have together, may you be lifted up, may you be praised, may you be honored above all else. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, what we have before us in Isaiah 64, in our particular passage, we are now in the midst of a prayer of intercession and a prayer of lament that's actually offered by Isaiah. In fact, if you want to read this prayer in its entirety, you would need to go back to Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7, and then continue reading until Isaiah 64, verse 12. Now, what we are going to see can really best be described as a passionate outburst, or better yet, a passionate plea for God to come and do what it is that he has already done before. So when we look at these particular passages, we can see that it's a, it's a call for God's presence to draw near to the people in verses 1 through 7. And then from there, Isaiah, in recognizing his plea for God to draw near, he is then going to realize both his own personal need along with the nation of Israel's need to realize their own sin and then to repent of their sin. We see this in verses 5 through 7. So as we read this impassioned prayer for God, let us see that God is our hope and let us see the passionate call for God to draw near to his people. Look with me again in verse 1. We read the words, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now here is Isaiah as the intercessor between God and the people of Israel. He immediately gives us his plea to God. 
You see, he's asking God here to rend or to tear open the curtains that exist between heaven and earth and to come down to his people. Now, if again, if you read this prayer from Isaiah in its entirety, you will then see that Isaiah is taking his prayer one step further than what it was that he asked for when he asked God to look down from the heavens back in Isaiah 63 verses 15. So by the time we get to our passage today, we now see a longing or a yearning for our omnipotent God to show up and in Isaiah's own words, to make the mountains quake at your presence. So don't miss what Isaiah is asking for here. You see, Isaiah is asking for God to just show up. Not to just necessarily watch from afar, but to to be right with his people so that his presence will be seen, his presence will be felt, his presence would be known, and the presence of God would be unmistakably clear for not only the nation of Israel, but for all those who lived around them. But now, if you pay attention here to the Hebrew. You see, the Hebrew grammar here actually reads in the past tense. So if we were to put this in our language today, it would almost be as if Isaiah were saying, if only you, O Lord, had already torn open the heavens and come down, then none of our current afflictions and situations would have ever happened. Now, don't misread Isaiah here. You see, Isaiah is not cursing God at this moment, nor is he showing frustration with God for his lack of response. Rather, Isaiah is showing us his desire for an immediate answer and an immediate action by God Almighty. You see, when we think about our own lives, it should be our desire, it should be our passion to see Jesus Christ return. And so when we pray, we should always pray with the return of Christ in mind. Now we go from there into verse 2 and we begin to see why we have this impassioned plea from Isaiah. He says to us to, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your preference. Now, what we have here in verse 2 is actually a reference back to Exodus 19 when God revealed himself on the mountain uh, to the people that had encamped around the mountain. Now, Isaiah here desire, uh, desired for the judgment of God to now come on those who were afflicting the people of God, which would be similar to how God revealed himself to the Egyptians back in Exodus 13. You see, Isaiah wanted the nations to see God. He wanted the nations to tremble at his presence so that the suffering of God's people would come to an end. Now just think about the power in that prayer from Isaiah. Lord, draw near to your people Draw near to us so that the mountains will quake at your, parent, at your presence, so that the mountains will shake at your presence, and even your adversaries would know you. How many of us today are emboldened enough to pray that very prayer? 
How many of us would be willing to pray to God, Lord, if you would just show up, your enemies would tremble. Your enemies would turn and all in this life would be better. Now I want to caution you before you pray that prayer. First of all, be careful how you pray to God. Because God may not answer the way you expect him to. Secondly, I want you to know that there's actually nothing wrong with praying this particular prayer. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see God show up. However, in the midst of that longing, in the midst of that pleading, let's remember the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when Peter tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Rather, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, when we read the prayer of Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2, we need to read it in light of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. We need to pray and plead with God, Lord, show up, yet at the same time, we need to understand that God will answer our prayers, but he will do it on his timetable. You see, when it comes to our God, we are not in a position to ever demand or dictate anything to God. That is not how this works. We are not on a cruise ship and he's our program's director. He's not a God that we can stick in a box. He's not a God that we can just throw up on a shelf when we need him and and, and bring him out when things get bad. You see, God answers when he so desires. You see, when we read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, again in light of Isaiah 64, we need to recognize that God will do what he wants when he wants to do it. It's not on our timetable. It is only his that matters. This is why we see Jesus Christ praying in the garden, Lord, let your will be done. You see, we need to pray for God to draw near to his people. We need to pray urgently for the second coming, but at the same time, we need to realize that that day will come when God desires it, and it'll be the day when God will be most glorified and not man. But notice that Isaiah is not done here. We move to verse 3, and now we begin to see why the people want God to show up. You see, it wasn't simply just for adversaries to just simply know God. They weren't praying for God to overthrow his enemies. Notice what Isaiah says. He said, you did awesome things that we did not look for. You see, here in Isaiah's prayer, we have a prayer for God to return, and he is being called upon to do an awesome work, and the people wanted to see God's awesome work put on full display again for the world to see. So you see, Isaiah here is praying for God to do more of his saving acts so that more people would come to know him. Now, we know these saving acts will be seen in the shaking or the quaking of the mountains, which represent the unshakable strength of God. In other words, by the time we get to verse 3, Isaiah is now revealing to us that God is the God of the unexpected. Now, Isaiah actually takes an interesting turn here. 
You see, instead of him praying for God to show up and then for God's enemies to be cast out, notice that Isaiah calls for God to show up and then he prays for God to do awesome things so that the enemies of God could see him and then ultimately become children of God themselves. Now, don't miss what Isaiah is saying here. Again, this is where it's key to to go back and read this entire prayer of lament. You see, in the midst of the lamenting, in the midst of the passionate pleas and the, the call for urgency, don't miss the fact that Isaiah is now asking God to draw near and to intercede for his people. And then ultimately, Isaiah then turns this moment of asking God to draw near for the purpose of seeing revival happen amongst the people who were considered enemies of God. Now think about that for a moment. When it comes to us today, as we pray for God to draw near, let's remember that in asking God to draw near, in asking God to rend the heavens, in asking God to to tear open the curtain that separates heaven and earth, in asking God to come quickly and to return, when was the last time we prayed that prayer, but then we prayed for our enemies to become children of God? Maybe enemies here is too strong a word. When was the last time we prayed for the people we disagree with? When was the last time we prayed for God to draw near so that he would be revealed to those we don't like, to those we are upset with, to those that we don't believe in? When did we last pray for the awesome presence and power of God to come so that even those we disagree with would come to know him as Lord? You see, Isaiah, in praying for God to be near, he not only recognized it for himself, but he wants us, I believe, to see it today. We need to see and recognize that even when we pray for our enemies, that prayer should be one of heart change. It should be a prayer of revival and not one of condemnation. You see, here's the reality that we often forget as Christians. And man, I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of Christians who forgot that with this last election cycle. But here's the truth. If God can change you, if God can change me, if God can grab hold of our hearts, if he can reveal himself to us, then surely he is powerful enough to change those who are his enemies. Surely he is powerful enough by his grace to change those that we ourselves disagree with. So if we are going to pray for God to draw near, then let us pray to that end so that we can see the work of God continue. Let us pray for our enemies and not persecute them. We move from there into verse 4. 
Isaiah continues and he says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you. Now here, again, Isaiah gives us a powerful reminder uh, to all of us who pray what a special privilege it is to pray to the one and only living God. Now think about this for a moment. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, I get it, but just pause and think about it for a moment. This past week, I don't know if you were paying attention to uh, astronomy or not, I don't know if you're into looking up into the stars, into the heavens, uh, but I was, I was in rural Alabama, which means there are no street lights, and man, you could just see the stars light up, but the coolest thing was happening as the moon and several of our pa- uh, planets were literally forming a triangle in the sky, and so I was watching this moment, and I was thinking, the creation creator of the universe ordained this moment to happen. A moment that would not take place for another 20 years. Now think about this in light of Isaiah 64. You see, the creator God of the universe, the same God who spoke the heavens into existence, the same God who spoke the earth into existence, the same God who spoke mankind into existence is not only near to us, but he is now near enough that he hears us and he gives attention to his people. You see, our great hope is not only near us, a a simple torn curtain away, according to Isaiah, but he is now near enough to be seen and be heard when he so chooses. And it is only done by his incredible grace and his incredible goodness. Do we realize as believers today that, man, when we pray, God hears us? Think about that for a moment. We have already prayed this morning, and guess what? God heard us. The God who spoke all things into existence heard us. He didn't just check his clock and go, wait a minute, you guys are creeping up on central time, and those people are waking up, and they need need me to hear them too. He doesn't say that to us. He hears us. When we sang this morning... God heard the praises of his people. That's a powerful thought when you begin to think about what it is that God hears from his people. But again, Isaiah is not done there. He moves into verse 5, and he says that you, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Now here is Isaiah's greatest hope. It's not only the fact that God hears us, but now God answers the prayers of the godly who delight in his ways. Now, don't mishear what Isaiah is saying here. He's not speaking of works here. Isaiah is not speaking of the fact that if you do enough for God, then God hears you. That's not at all what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is this. When we delight in God, when we delight in the word of God, when we delight in the ways of God, then our ways will become more of his ways and our hearts will now join with his. And then when we pray, our prayers will line up with the will of God being done for the glory of God. So you see, it's not about works at all. 
It's about being faithfully aligned to the will and the wonder that is God himself. But now pay attention to what happens here in verse 5. Because now all of a sudden, in the midst of this plea, in the midst of this impassioned prayer, it almost seems as like a light bulb went off in Isaiah's mind, which if you go back and, and read through the book of Isaiah, he really should have seen this coming. But notice what he says. Here comes our problem. He says, we sinned. And in our sins, we have been a long time. You see, Isaiah realizes that no person of prayer no believer on this earth is sinless. Now, we know this from the, uh, from the New Testament when you read Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we can see not only in Isaiah's words, but also what's taught to us in Romans 3, that none of us is righteous. All of us are wretched sinners. And so when we pray for God to draw near, it's always interesting to me that as we pray for God to draw near, as we find ourselves walking closer into the will of God, it's always interesting to note how it is our sin that will then be drawn out of us. And so what we have right here in verses 5, continuing into verse 7, could actually be labeled as the doctrine of sin. You see, from Isaiah's own words, we learn that sin is continually practiced. We learn that sin is defiling. We learn that sin is destructive. And yes, according to Isaiah, sin, as we know, will create a barrier between us and God. So we move to verse 6, and now we begin to see the effects of our sin. Isaiah says that we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, when we are seen in the light of God's perfect and holy standard, now bear in mind, Isaiah was pleading for God to draw near, and as he's beginning to think of God drawing near, he begins to realize how God's righteousness and God's holiness will bring to light all that will come to bear. It becomes clear to even Isaiah that even our most righteous people will be uncleaned before God. And even our most righteous people, ourselves included, even our most righteous acts will be like a polluted garment when faced with a holy God. You see, when we stand before God, we will stand before him like a garment that is stained. We will stand before God like polluted sinners. Our sin will be revealed. And then here's the reality. Our problem is not even merely our sinful acts, but the fact that even our very best works are now defiled before our holy and righteous God. You see, we will almost become like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, where upon seeing the presence of God cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. You see, even our best day is not good enough to earn favor with God. But notice that Isaiah is not done. He says that we all fade like a leaf. You see, Isaiah reminds us that even in the presence of God, we are merely mortal. 
while it is the Lord who will endure forever. You see, in our sin-sick state, like the wicked around us, we too will be blown away like leaves in the wind. So as we think about this prayer even more, as we plead for God to draw near, we need to be prepared that it will be God who will tear open the curtain, not only to this world, but he is going to tear, tear open the curtain of our veiled hearts, and he is going to expose what it is that is really happening within us. But again, Isaiah is not done as we see in verse 7. Because in verse 7, we now have a sobering truth. You see, in verse 7, we see that apart from the work of King Jesus, God would most certainly hide himself from the most righteous intercessor that we could ever choose. You see, in other words, even as people who are living in a sin-sick state living in just being totally depraved. There's not one that we will be able to look around amongst us and say, perhaps this person is clean enough before God. Perhaps this person is pure enough to go before God. No, what we see is that God will even hide himself from those whom we consider the most righteous. So as we gather to pray for one another, as we can gather to pray for God to draw near. Let us pray with humility and let us pray in reliance for the finished work of Jesus Christ to be put on full display because the only reason that we are able to cry out to God, the only reason that God hears us is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. You see, only Christ was the perfect intercessor. So as we look again in verses 5, 6, and 7, we, we now see how sin snowballs. We see how the doctrine of sin just continues to get bigger and bigger. Our, our sin has declared us unclean. Even in the midst of our most righteous moments, it will not be enough for, for God to be satisfied. So if left in this sin-sick state, then we will be blown away with the wind. So now we are in need of a true and righteous intercessor. We are now in need of a mediator who goes and speaks on our behalf. And we are now at a point where we can come before the Lord and pray, oh Lord, we, your sinful people, desperately need you to cover our sins and act on our behalf. Please help us. Please hear us. Oh Lord, our God, no longer be silent or restrain your affections towards us. You see, we need a mediator. We need one who will stand with us. We need one who will declare us clean by his blood. And as we know, that came in the form of Jesus Christ. You see, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, it was Christ who, for the glory of God, took upon the sins of the world so that those who would believe in him would one day stand before God as clean. And so we praise him for his work. Isaiah then takes us into verse 8 and 9 of his prayer. And here comes a beautiful reminder of really who God is. He says, you, God, are our father. We are the clay. And you are our potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. Now here again, Isaiah now acknowledges that it was God who brought us into being. And since God brought us into being, it is God who is sovereign. And yes, our sovereign God is still sovereign today. And he is sovereign over the realm of sin and over the realm of judgment. But now notice again Isaiah's words in verse 9. He says, please look. We are all your people. Notice here that Isaiah, joining with the people, now cry out for God's mercy. Notice what they ask. They ask God not to remember their sins, but rather to remember them as his people. So as we pray for God to draw near, we need to remember that all people were created in the image of God. As we pray for God to draw near to us, as we pray for the day of the second coming, we need to realize that God and God alone is the God of the universe and all things belong to him and he will do his will according to his way and ultimately for his glory. We are nothing more than mere clay in the hands of our faithful potter. You see, as we pray, as we pray in this season of Advent for God to draw near, let us again pray not only for ourselves, but let us also pray for the restoration of all peoples so that all peoples of the world would come to know him as Lord. Let us not be a people who pray condemnation upon people, but rather let us pray restoration upon them. You see, as God's people, our prayer, our plea for God is to be that God would draw near to us. That is the, that is the hope that we have. You see, we hope that God will remember his people and through his remembrance we would realize that God alone is sovereign and that now because of the hope we now have in Christ, we are adopted into his family. You see, when we stand before God, as Isaiah notes here, we stand before him as wretched sinners, but by God's grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, we stand righteous and clean before our holy God. My prayer is that as we continue to walk through Advent season, that we would remember that we were once, and still are, wretched sinners in need of a Savior. At the same time, my prayer is that our hope would now rest in the fact that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of even our own sin and our own filth, that we would see our desperate need for God to draw near. You see, here's the reality. Isaiah's passionate plea for God to draw near would come. God would answer his prayer, but it would come on God's timeline. And thanks be to God that it would come in the form of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God heard the prayer of Isaiah, and he answered. But God would also answer again when he sent Christ into the world. And at the very presence of Christ, the mountains 
would shake again. So as we walk through this Advent, as we walk through the story of Christ, as we walk and look and long for the second coming, let us look at the hope that Christ now reveals to us as he draws near again. Remember, it was Isaiah who prayed, Lord, draw near. Lord, come to your people. Now listen again as we read earlier Jesus' words. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 24, he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, notice, we have trials, we have adversaries, we now have mountains shaking and now we have a need for Jesus Christ to come again and now it is at hand just like it was at hand when Isaiah prayed for the presence of God to come. But then here comes the hope. If you're following with me in Mark 13, underline the next phrase, and then, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There is our hope for this season. But notice, Jesus was not done there. Again, Isaiah pleading, God, let your presence be known, and then pick up on what Jesus says. Again, our hope, the very next sentence, and then he will send out the angels, and he will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Isaiah prayed to God to draw near, and God answered. And God answers in the form of Jesus Christ. And so now, because of Christ, we have hope because we know that one day Jesus Christ is coming again. So if we are going to pray, let us pray, Lord, draw near to us again. Lord, bring on the second coming so that we can be reunited with you. And then as we pray that prayer, let's remember that just as God answered Isaiah, just as we see prophecy fulfilled in the coming of Christ and all that Christ did for us, we can now know that when Jesus said he will come again, we know he is coming back. So as we continue to walk through Advent together this season, again, this is an Advent season like no other. We've never had an Advent season in the midst of a, of a pandemic. I don't think any of us have ever lived through a pandemic like this before. But as we walk through the trials, the uncertainties, the frustrations, the heartaches, the griefs, even in the midst of the celebrations, let us always be reminded that because of Christ, because of his second coming, hope is near. That's the promise we have as believers today. Let's pray together.